Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to Mark, chapter 14, we'll continue in our, our series in Mark. If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through this book. We're almost uh, to, to the end, just a few more weeks. If you're wondering what's next, uh, we're actually going to be uh, jumping into the book of uh, 2 Samuel for our next series, so you might want to start uh, reading through that. It's got quite an uh, interesting storyline, a lot going on in that book. So we're at Mark chapter 14, verse 53. Most of you are uh, familiar with this show, American Idol. Uh, it's been on the air, I guess, almost 20 years now. It first aired in 2002. If you're not familiar with it, it is a singing competition show where people audition for a chance to be the next American pop star or idol, as they say. Now, when the show first aired, it was kind of a sensation, and clips of the auditions that people were doing were, were flooding the, the internet. Uh, not so much because of how talented the contestants were, but how deluded some of them were. People would audition for this uh, show, and still do, uh, you know, claiming to be great singers, that they had been performing all their life, they're probably one of the best undiscovered voices in America. And they were pretty sincere and believable. And then they would sing. And suddenly there was this moment of truth. Very revealing. Some were quite good, but many of them were horrible. Were terrible. Not even close to good singers. Painful to listen to. And it was shocking how off they were in their perception of their ability. And over the years, some of them have been so bad that they've become famous just for that. I think you remember William Hung. I think he got a contract, a recording label, and everything because he was so terrible. Now we laugh, but we've all had, uh, in a sense, similar moments in life, moments of truth, where our perception of ourselves has been revealed to be a little off from uh, reality. I know I've, uh, some of you have heard the story of uh, when I was living in Australia in seminary and uh, we went to a, a church swim carnival. We just went to watch. Swim carnivals were where the churches would have a swim meet against the other churches. You know, it's a very outdoor culture. And we're watching along, and, and then my friend comes and says, hey, our church needs a, a, a person for the 100 meter. Would you do that? Would you, would you go swim? And I thought, no, this is crazy. And he said, no, go, go ahead. If you just swim the lane, we get points. It was a nice warm day. I thought, well, okay, I'll swim the lane. So I went down there, and as soon as I got up on the, on the little mount, I looked left and right, and there was just these two old guys that I was up against, old kind of fat guys, and I was like, I can take this. <laughs> and uh, I had been on the swim team when I was a kid. I mean, how hard could this be, right? So, it, you know, whatever, they start the race, and I, I swim I'm way ahead of them. I'm swimming like crazy. I got about halfway through the pool. I thought I should be done. I looked up. the was a lot a long ways to go, and I couldn't breathe. And I just started I was dying. I was dog paddling. These old guys swam past me. I barely made it to the edge, and then I got out and threw up. <laughs> and they came, and they were patting me on the back. <laughs> Stupid American. 
my perception was a little, a little off. Moments of truth, they are good for us because they help us face reality. And I bring this up because in our text this morning, we see two big moments of truth for the two main characters. They're, they're kind of spiritual moments of truth. For, for, first of all, Jesus, and second of all, his number one follower, at least he claims to be, Peter. Two moments that really reveal the truth about them. If you remember from last week, things had kind of reached a climax. Jesus has reached Jerusalem. Uh, all the crowds are there. He's gone to the, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and, he, and he's praying about facing the cross, and his disciples can't keep awake. They're falling asleep. Suddenly, the soldiers are there with Judas leading them. They're upon him, and they take him, and the disciples flee for their lives. And we come to today's text, verse 53 of chapter 14. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. So Jesus is taken and he's put on trial before what is called the Sanhedrin. And it's a moment of truth. The pressure is on. The Sanhedrin is the highest ruling body, kind of the Supreme Court of Israel, and it says that they are all there. So all the chief priests and all the elders, all the scribes, all 70 of them are there. And according to Matthew, it's past midnight, so they've gotten up in the middle of the night, they've gathered them all in, they've come into this room, probably by torchlight, they've surrounded him in a semicircle, as was the custom, and they're holding court over Jesus. These are the guys that have been scheming along with the Herodians since chapter 6 on how to destroy Jesus. And now, they finally have him. They haven't been able to touch him up to this point. But now they've captured him, they've surrounded him, and they're having their own little private trial. And their hatred, as you, as you read the story, you can see that their hatred is kind of seething and their bodies are twitching, they're ready to, to beat him. And he knows they won't be satisfied with anything less than his death. The pressure is on. I mean, if Jesus is a fraud, if he's just a con man trying to win a crowd to cash in later, this is the time to give it up, isn't it? This is the time to reveal the truth. This is the time to say, hey, everybody just chill. Just calm down. Maybe I exaggerated a little. Yeah, I'm a prophet, but the God thing, you know, I mean, the disciples got carried away as a mob kind of mentality. Just this is the time to come clean, to say something to save his skin. So what's going to happen? What will be revealed? But what we need to know is that it's also the moment of truth for Peter. As, as we saw, he actually followed along at a distance as they took Jesus away, and he ended up in the courtyard of the building that Jesus is being tried in. And while Jesus is inside facing these intense questions, Peter is outside in the courtyard, and a, a little trial begins for him as well that will also be a very interesting, revealing moment. 
And it's interesting how Mark wraps these two together. He tells the story like he does with those sandwiches where he starts talking about Peter and then he tells you the story of Jesus and then he comes back to Peter and he wants us to compare and contrast these two little trials, these two little moments of truth. So let's start with, with Jesus, his moment. Look at verse uh, 55 with me. I put my glasses on so I can see it. This is what it says. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found no one, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimonies did not agree. So as this, uh, this inquisition begins, Caiaphas, the high priest, whose name actually means inquisitor, I didn't know that until this week, calls for testimony against Jesus. He calls for anyone to bring evidence so as to condemn Jesus. He assumes they're all going to come forward with this great stuff, but almost poetically, there is, there's none. It says they, they found none. They actually have nothing on Jesus. So they quickly change tack and start bringing uh, false testimony against him. But what's the problem? Their stories don't agree. <laughs> They're bringing false testimony, but they can't seem to even agree on that because it's hard to keep lies straight, isn't it? You learn this every time you watch one of those cop shows, right? They always separate the witnesses so they can get their stories separately because if they're lying, they can't keep their stories straight. If they're telling the truth, it'll, it'll coincide. But if they're not, at least that's what happens. You know, I see that on TV. So their stories aren't matching, which is a problem because according to the law, the Jewish law, they must have at least two corroborating witnesses to move forward in any, especially any capital case capital punishment. And even on their main charge, you see in verse 58 as to Jesus saying that he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, they can't agree. Now, now we know they clearly misunderstood him that he, because he was referring to, to his body, to his death and then being raised up and being the temple of God, the place where people could meet God through that, they didn't understand that, but they can't even agree on what he actually said. The, the, you can see this moment is probably very frustrating for, uh, for the high, high priest here, for the inquisitor. It's almost getting farcical. Jesus is winning and he hasn't even opened his mouth. But we can't miss the truth that's being stated just in this, that's being revealed about Jesus. And what is that? It's that he simply is innocent. As they struggle to bring evidence against him and fumble in their lives, they're actually proving the opposite. He truly is fully innocent. They've got nothing on him because there is nothing Nothing. I find this amazing. 
If you gathered 70 people, especially smart lawyer types, which these guys are, to bring evidence against me to prove, well, first of all, that I'm not God, that would be easy, but even to prove that I'm, I'm not even close, that I'm not even very godly, to prove that I'm a flawed sinner, they would have a heyday. And they would have no problem finding cooperating witnesses, right? Start with my wife, and then my kids, and then most of you, and then people from high school, and then my grade school. They go all the way back. But they have nothing. Because the truth is, Jesus is the blameless one of God, the pure son, the righteous one, the one without sin. It's a revealing moment. And the relevance of this truth about him is just expanded as we read on because as this scene progresses, Mark emphasizes in verse 61 that Jesus refused to speak. That no matter the accusations they made, he would not defend himself. It says he remained silent and made no answer. Now it's a line, you could just read right through that, that he remained silent and and gave no answer, but it's a line that any Jew would recognize as an allusion pointing straight back to Isaiah 53, which we we read this morning, Isaiah 53, 7, and I'm going to read that again. If you want, you can flip over there, because I want to read it within its context. I'll start at verse 4, and we'll just read through to 7. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then I want to skip to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see And be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus, in in, in staying silent here, is clearly saying something, isn't he? He's clearly saying that he is this suffering servant. He is the innocent, pure lamb, the righteous one, who will be wounded for our transgressions, who will bear our iniquities, who will make the unrighteous to be counted righteous, who will pour out his soul unto death for us. This is the truth that he's living out before him in this moment as he's unjustly accused and beaten and will willingly and quietly go all the way to the cross. 
And, and I, I think the question that you want to ask is, did, did any of them in that moment hear what Jesus was saying with his mouth shut? And do we? If you're not a Christian, do you hear what Jesus is saying here? Do you know the truth that's being revealed about him in this moment? Do you understand that Jesus gave his pure, perfect life for your messed up, sinful one to bring you forgiveness and salvation? He sacrificed everything for us, for me and you. Have you received Jesus through repentance and faith? Now, importantly, this isn't the only truth Jesus that's being revealed about him in this moment. When this pressure is on. Because Jesus finally does speak. It's at the end of, of, of uh, verse 61. When Caiaphas finally puts it to him directly and says this. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ the son of the blessed. It's the ultimate moment of truth question. He just puts it to him straight. Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed king, the Messiah that we've been waiting for? And are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? It's interesting. It's a good, it's a good question for him to use because if Jesus answers yes, they have him. Not only for blasphemy, but for treason. Claiming to be the king. It's a capital offense against Rome. It's punishable by death. And Jesus, uh, he speaks for the first time. Verse 62, when Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He unequivocally says, yes, that's me. And then he quotes Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I'm going to flip back there and read them in context as well. It's this wonderful part about this, this prophecy of the Son of Man who will come. And this is what it says, I saw in the night's vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So he goes to the throne of God and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, yes, not only am I the Messiah King, but I am the King that will be given all dominions and all will serve Him. In other words, they are trying to hold trial over the wrong guy. They are standing over the man who is God's king and judge. It is a startling statement to them, a bold moment of truth. Are you the king, the Messiah? Yes, he says. And in fact, 
I am the ultimate divine king of the world who have dominion over all peoples and nations, even you. It reminds me a little bit of that moment in the movie A Few Good Men, right? Where Jack Nicholas says, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Because they can't handle it. Look what happens when he says this. What happens? Look at your text. They start freaking out. They start beating him. They start spitting on him. They cover his face in a bag, like the mafia or something. And they're saying, prophesy, who's doing this to you? Oh, prophet. Mocking, beating, spitting. This pious, pompous group of the most religious, oh-so-righteous men of justice, the Supreme Court of Israel, become out-of-control evil beasts. It's kind of a moment of truth for them, isn't it? So we see Jesus under great pressure as he's being unjustly tried show in his moment of truth who he really is as he stands strong. Shows that he is indeed the true, innocent, pure son of God, the suffering servant who will give his life for sinners, the king and judge of the world to whom all will give account. So we hold that in our minds, and then we turn to uh, Peter's little trial outside. It's not going quite as well, his moment of truth. Let's take a look, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. So we have to note that Peter, in a sense, quite courageously has followed Jesus all the way to this building. I mean, unlike the rest of the disciples who seem to have gone away, he has followed all the way into this courtyard He's, he, he's right there. He can probably hear everything that's going on inside that building. I, I took a trip to Israel. I saw these kind of ruins in these buildings. They didn't have, you know, glass panes in the windows. They were kind of sandstone echo chambers. I'm sure he could hear everything that was going on. He could hear the, the, the shouting and the accusations, the mocking and the beating of Jesus that he was enduring. And suddenly, as he's warming himself by the fire, a little girl points his finger, finger at him. And who is this little girl? It's very interesting. She's the servant girl of the high priest who's in there holding his, his inquisition over Jesus. And here's this little girl. And the text makes it clear. It's not a woman. It's a young girl. And she points her finger at Jesus, and she says, he's one of them. Excuse me, he points Peter Peter, and says, he's one of them. He's with Jesus. And the moment of truth is on. If you remember uh, Peter's claims just hours earlier, we saw them last week in chapter 29 of this passage, of this whole section. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, Jesus, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
He was full of confidence and bravado. He will stand forever with Jesus. He will die for him. And I'm sure he really thought that. But with the sound of Jesus getting beaten in his ears, his courage kind of withers. And he says, girl, I don't know what you're talking about. I love how it says, he says, he doesn't know, he doesn't know doesn't, what she's talking about, and he, he doesn't understand what she's saying. I don't know what you're talking about, he says. I don't even understand what you mean. And my favorite part is this, at the end of verse 69, this is what he says. It says, and he went out into the gateway. So this is what Peter's doing. He's saying this, hey, I don't, I don't know what you mean. I don't even know what you're talking about. And he's heading towards the gate. He's figuring out his exit strategy. He's getting his foot in the door as he makes his denial. And as he plays dumb, the rooster crows. At this point, all his bravado is looking a little anemic. Maybe Peter wasn't in, as in touch with himself as he thought. And the little girl keeps coming after him. This is one of those times where I'm sure she, he wished she was, you know, a man so he could just like punch him in the face. But it's a little girl, what's he going to do? And she starts grabbing bystanders and saying, he's one of them. And then Peter denies any association again. And finally, she yells out, surely you are one of them. You are a Galilean. Unlike the high priest and his cohorts, she actually provides a real piece of evidence. You got those guys are all from Galilee. He's a Galilean. And Peter can't take it anymore, and he just starts swearing and cursing. You know, if you really want to convince someone that you're not a follower of Christ, you can just start dropping the swear words and using foul language. I bleepity bleep don't know what you're bleeping talking about. And I'll be damned if I'm lying right now, because it says he calls down curses on himself. And then we read the last sad verse, verse 72. And immediately the rooster, rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Why? Because for the first time, Peter faced the truth truth about himself it was revealed so powerfully in that moment that he couldn't deny it he isn't the strong one who is committed to the end and will never fail he is a weak broken sinner who cannot stand on his own and a little girl can bring him down like that it's actually a fantastic moment isn't it what a great moment of truth for Peter. I look at this as the turning point in his salvation. See, no one gets saved who thinks they are strong. No one gets saved by their strength of will and determination. No one gets saved who comes in pride and self-reliance to follow Jesus. 
It's only those who see themselves as the desperate, broken, totally reliant sinners that they are. Think through this book. Jarius, the hemorrhaging women, the leper, the demon-possessed boy's father who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. The Syrophoenician woman begging for crumbs from Jesus. As Jesus said in chapter 4, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. It's Peter's brokenness in this moment which will lead to his restoration. When later the resurrected Jesus calls after him on the beach, we see that in the book of John. He sees Peter says, Peter, do you love me? And he says it three times to Peter, just like the three denials. Jesus says three times, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I do. And then he says, then feed my sheep, be my disciple. You see, as we close, there's, there's two questions I want us to consider. First of all, do, do you see Jesus in this moment of truth? Do you see the innocent, pure Son of God, the one who suffered for you and bore your sins, yours and mine, to bring forgiveness? The one who is your true judge and king? The one who stands strong for you, for me and our weakness before our enemy, before death, when we fail? Do you see that any judgment you make against him is ultimately a judgment on yourself? Do you really see him? Do you recognize your Savior and King? And secondly, do you see yourself have you had that moment of truth spiritually in your own life? That revelation where you stop lying to yourself and you give up on the delusion of your own strength and committedness. Where you see and admit your weakness and brokenness. I think, that, I think this kind of self Evaluation is particularly important if you consider yourself a strong follower of Christ like Peter and his disciples. Maybe because you, you've grown up in a Christian family. It's been who you've considered yourself all your life. You've gone to church all your life. So you're like, of course I am. Like Peter. Here are two little diagnostic questions to consider as you think of yourself. In your Christian walk, have you always been hedging towards the gate? You know, one foot in the exit, just in case things get a little too intense and committed. You're fine with Christianity as long as it doesn't require too much of you. You're sort of half in. Because moments will come that will reveal that. Moments of truth. A lot of times it's a relational moment. I see this with young people, consider themselves Christians all their life, go off to college, and they meet that non-Christian, handsome person or beautiful person that they want to date. Suddenly they don't 
know if they're a Christian anymore. They're not quite sure what they believe now or if the Bible's true now. He had that foot just over in the door. Sometimes it's just crises that happen in life. A friend of mine in Australia became a Christian and he went back to his job and that year he, he did accounting and stuff at, at this company and they were asking him to cook the books and he realized he couldn't do it. It was that moment of truth, right? What would be revealed about him? Do you have one foot in the exit? If you can see this about yourself, it's a sign that you probably really don't see Jesus or yourself clearly. Secondly, ask yourself this. Has the rooster already crowed once in your life? I often think what went through Peter's mind when that first rooster crowed. Did he even hear it? Did he hear it but ignore it, thinking that I'm fine? Only he did that first warning. Has God already been trying to wake you to yourself as you've made little compromises here and there that deny him in your life? That sin that you just keep letting happen, the, the Spirit's conviction that you keep ignoring. If you're not sure, ask God to help you, to help you see yourself honestly, and to help you see His Son, to come to that real moment of truth in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word you show us your, yourself. That your word is a mirror. We pray that you'll help us to, by your spirit today, Lord, to see ourselves and to see your son come to that truth in our life. In your name, amen.